Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 29, and picking up again at verses 33 through 34. Listen now to the word from 1 Corinthians. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have been factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together... It is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. In this sermon series on seven why questions concerning the church, we come today to why mission. Now since for the last two and a half years, Patrick has moved into a position our pastoral staff, to where he is associate pastor for mission and pastoral care, I thought I would ask him what questions he would like for me to try to address in this sermon. He sent me 16. (laughs) I promise to only do 14 today. For this sermon, I want to be clear that what I'm talking about is not mission in the overall sense of the purpose of the church as an institution, as in the phrase mission statement. Rather, I want to ask today why a local church would engage in ministries 
that seek to improve or change society as a whole, or ministries that focus on people who lie beyond the congregation's membership, people who have spiritual or physical needs, people who may live anywhere in the world, people who may or may not profess Christian faith. In other words, why does the church give time and attention to people beyond our members? I want to give two traditional answers, and I want to give a third way that may be a bit new to our thinking. Let us pray. Lord, here we are. Send us. Amen. The first reason for the church to engage in mission is that from the earliest formation of the people of God, there is a clear mandate on the part of God for us as God's people to be responsible for the entire created order. At creation, God says to the man and the woman who form our spiritual ancestors, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. When the second generation of humans ask in old blood, Am I my brother's keeper? God responds by saying, Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. It is a graphic Rejoinder to the question, am I my brother's keeper? When God tells, calls Abraham and Sarah, while promising the aged couple, the heretofore unrealized descendants for which they have been hoping, as well as the gift of land, God also bestows upon them a blessing. But a blessing not for their own retirement ease, but a blessing that through them all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All of the nations. All of them. As the people of God are shepherded through 2,000 years of history, God consistently reminds them over 20 times to make provision for the widow and the orphan. In the scriptures that emerge from their experience of God, the poor are mentioned 213 times, the hungry 56 times, the naked 88 times, the oppressed 54 times, the prisoner 42 times, and the sick 96 times. Thanks to Oremus.com, I didn't have to tabulate these myself. Then when Jesus is born as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord, one of his most telling statements is, Inasmuch as you did this unto one of these, the least of my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me. 
His greatest commandment ends with the call to love your neighbor as yourself. One of the most universally known parables he gives is entitled The Good Samaritan. Though he acknowledges he was sent only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, his final and ultimate commission to his disciples is to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Particularly the Gospel of Luke depicts Jesus' focus as accurately being on the least, the last, and the lost. Over a century ago, our little denominational expression of Christianity, known as Presbyterianism, formulated as part of our relationship of being part of the larger Holy Catholic Church, what we named then as the great ends of the church. Proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind. Shelter, nurture, nurture, and spiritual fellowship for the children of God. Maintenance of divine worship. An exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to the world. How less than great these ends of the church would be that they read as follows. Proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of people who are already Christian. Shelter, nurture, and spiritual fellowship of the children of the church. Exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to people who already believe. From the earliest days of the formation of God's people, God issues a clear mandate for us to be responsible for the entire created order, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion, fill the earth and subdue it. We've a story to tell to the nations, the nations. A second aspect of mission that I feel compelled to address in particular to those of us or most of us in this room, in the circles in which we run, in the zip codes in which we receive our mail or welcome our Amazon delivery trucks, and even still in the nation we call home. It is the phrase Jesus uses in Luke, to whom much has been given, much is required. I think you know what I'm talking about here. Our level of education, our income, the food we eat and the daily guidance we receive, sometimes contradictory as to what is most and least healthy. The homes we live in, the arts we enjoy, the longevity of our lives and the health care to which we have access that often makes that longevity productive and relatively enjoyable. In the early 90s, I was doing pre-marriage counseling with a couple, both of whom were living in Chicago as young adults, just out of graduate school in their first professional positions. They had returned to the town in which I was living to be married. In Chicago, they were attending Fourth Presbyterian Church, one of the cathedral churches of our denomination, a church that rises stately on Michigan Avenue, the Magnificent Mile. Some of you know it. Some of you have worshipped there. 
A friend of mine who knows Fourth Pres well has dubbed it Law Firm at Prayer. <laughs> the man of the couple said to me, the first time I attended Fourth Pres, the minister was describing everything that was good about the privileged lives so many of us lead. It described everything I was feeling about myself, everything to which my childhood and college years had pointed. And then he said, the minister paused and looked up and continued to pause. And then he leaned forward and he said, now earn it. Now, earn it. To whom much is given, much, much, much is required. The third and perhaps most personal reason for a church to be involved in mission relates in a heightened way in our time and place. It is this. We benefit from being exposed to people who are not like us. Economically, racially, culturally, politically, in sexual identity, religiously, educationally, ideologically, in life experience. We benefit from exposure to the other because it makes them more human to us and us more human to them. It increases our understanding of the world in which we live and the world in which they live. It draws forth our capacities for empathy and sympathy. It therefore makes us better equipped to live faithfully in the world and exercise positively the dominion with which God has charged us at creation because through those less like us, we know the world better. Indeed, when we are exposed in a personal way to people who are different from us, we experience a glimpse of the truth which Jesus promises will set us free. When someone walks into our building and asks to see a pastor, and I happen to be the minister to come down from upstairs and meet with that person, I learn a little bit more of what it is like for someone not to be able to pay their rent, for someone not to be able to buy medicine for their children, for someone not to have enough cash even to buy their next meal at McDonald's. I benefit from sheer exposure to them. When I visit someone from the congregation in the psychiatric ward of a hospital, I benefit. When I visit a member of the church in a county jail or a state prison, which I have done over the years, I benefit. I learn from people who are like me, but sometimes I learn more from people who are unlike me. And that learning increases when I am directly involved in one of the mission programs of the church or in volunteer work in the community that brings me in face-to-face -face 
contact with someone I might not otherwise meet or know. A few weeks after the 2016 presidential election, a member of the church sent me a copy of Hillbilly Elegy, a moving account by J.D. Vance of his own Appalachian upbringing in an opioid-infested environment, and then afterward his days at Yale Law School. About that same time, I had a rare visit with my brother's 20-something son, who has grown up in Knoxville and entered a world not unlike that of Vance's upbringing. I heard from from him his own struggle with addiction, with treatment, with becoming a father of two girls through a woman he met and married in treatment, with his wife's subsequent relapse and abandonment, and with descriptions of some of what these girls still under the age of 10 saw and faced on those rare times when they were in their mother's care, but she could not give them care. It was as graphic as anything in Vance's book. As sad as it was for me to hear my nephew's tale, I came away admiring him for his courage and admiring my brother for the role he played in helping his son through the arduous process of securing custody of the two girls. I came away understanding at a deeper level what it is like for so many people who experience the worst of times and what remains for many of us the best of times. In our scripture lesson today, the Apostle Paul is speaking about differences in class and wealth, differences which lead us as human beings to naturally gravitate towards people who are like us. Paul is writing the church at Corinth, which he has founded, And he brings up something that he has been hearing about them in his absence. About the way they comport themselves when gathering for communion for the Lord's Supper after they have shared a meal together in the house church. To begin with, Paul writes, When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. Then one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. Paul adds, when you come together in this way, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. But then he offers a solution. Examine yourselves, he says, and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. Now I've grown up hearing these words in church and Sunday school and from the pulpit on communion Sundays. 
I've always thought that they simply admonish us against taking communion without thinking of the ways that Christ is present to us in the bread and wine. I've assumed the passage is simply saying we are to discern the body and blood of Christ within the bread and wine that we lift to our lips. It is saying this. But I have it on good scholarly authority that Paul so that Paul is also talking about the body and blood of Christ being within the body of the church, being within the bodies gathered to partake of the body and blood at the table. Paul is saying, discern among all who have gathered, whether they are prosperous and have arrived early or are poor and have arrived late, discern the body of Christ within the body of the gathered church. And when you come together to eat, he then adds, wait for one another. Accept one another. Welcome one another. My friends, when we engage in mission, we discern the body of Christ in the lives, the struggles, the courage of those we serve and of those who serve us. Even and sometimes especially when they are different from us. Amen.